This is really about being free to create what you want your life to look like. We each are our own hero. And how do we take the challenges that come our way and see those as the birth process of us becoming heroic? Can you meet that judgment that ultimately will surface with neutrality? This is the Wall Street Coach Podcast with Kim Ann Curtin. So glad you guys are here to watch my podcast. Thank you. Please make sure to subscribe uh, so that you can get notified when we have new podcasts. We've got a lot of great guests coming up. Please don't also don't forget to sign up for my book, uh, Discipline and Finding Your Edge. It's a free ebook. If you go to TraderDiscipline.com, you'll get a copy of it. And you're going to love this interview with Anthony Scarmucci. Thank you for watching. Welcome back, everybody, to the Wall Street Coach Podcast. I'm so excited today to have Anthony Scarmucci here, also known as the Mooch. I got to meet Anthony back in 2016, and I'm a huge fan of him, most of all because his straight-from-the-hip style, he's able to take really complex uh, financial conversations and really transform them into conversations you can talk uh, to understand everything. I don't know how you do that, Anthony, but it's it's definitely a gift you have. So thank you for coming on our podcast. And I'm going to read your official bio just for those who might be living under a rock or in a dark cave who have never heard of you, because I don't know anybody that wouldn't have heard of you at this point. Um, but of course, Anthony is the founder and managing partner of Skybridge Capital, a global alternative investment advisory firm. And as of 2021, the firm had over $6 billion under management. More than a decade ago, he founded and launched the annual SALT Conference, a gathering of business leaders, politicians, athletes, and entertainers. He uh, started at Goldman Sachs in 89, was appointed vice president of wealth management in 93. He attended Tufts and also Harvard Law School and served, of course, as the White House Communications Director briefly in 2017. Thanks for being here, Anthony. It's good to be here. It's always a pleasure to be with you. Aloha. Tell me, uh, you know, tell me what you'd like to talk about. We'll go in any direction that you want. Well, I just finished reading your book, The Sweet Life of Bitcoin. Um, I'm really feeling completely enrolled after reading that book. I'm also sad to say that in 2008, when I coached for free outside the stock exchange for a year after the crisis, there was a shop next door to the stock exchange that was a Bitcoin uh, front. It was it was like a, a little office where they were trying to teach everybody about Bitcoin. And I have to say, finishing your book, I was like, God, can you imagine if I had been enrolled by that guy who was in that little office? So I'm just curious, when you first heard about it, your pushback, and then what the time difference between jumping on board to write this book? So, I mean, it's a great question because as you know, we um, we all heard about Bitcoin. We all learned about Bitcoin, but studying Bitcoin, uh, it probably took me um, until 2017. So the Winklevoss twins uh, who run Gemini, uh, they had gotten a settlement from Facebook. They put a lot of that money into Bitcoin. They came to my conference, the SALT conference in 2014, to talk about Bitcoin. And I listened and I said, it's very interesting, but I'm an institutional investor. Unless it scales, it's too speculative for me. 
obviously we all wish we had bought Bitcoin at $10, but um, I, I couldn't buy it at $10 as a fiduciary. I had to see a scaling process and that started to take place in 2017. And so I took, took some notes and I said to myself, if Bitcoin could get to 100 million wallets, I could scale into it over time and store it safely. And of course, you know, maybe your viewers and listeners know about this, but Mt. Gox, which at the time of the hacking of Mt. Gox was one of the largest Bitcoin exchanges and, and a lot of Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies were stolen in 2014. So I was very worried about that. Yep. Um, when it became clear that I could store the Bitcoin at Fidelity or a place like Nidig, uh, and I felt pretty safe with all that, we made the decision uh, to start wading into Bitcoin. We made our first Bitcoin purchases in November of 2020. Uh, we scaled in over a three-month period of time. I think our average cost was about $18,000 a coin. Uh, they're roughly $40,000 a coin now. So anybody that buys something a year ago, two years ago, and it doubles should be very happy. But what happens with Bitcoin is it went from there to 70000 and now it's back down to 39000 And so there's some pain in that for people. Mm -hmm. uh, people like to mark themselves to the market immediately. And of course, if you're in Bitcoin, you know that you have to have a very long-term horizon. It's speculative. Yep. It's a volatile asset. Obviously, I'm a big believer in it. But we have to, we have to be patient. Um, you probably know this too, but it's also worth sharing. The best performing accounts at Charles Schwab, Kim, are the dead people. Okay. Why? Well, they don't do anything. They don't change anything. They don't get emotionally tied into the account. Okay. It isn't until their executors and their heirs get in there and they start hacking it up. But the truth be told, we're just so much better off making a long-term strategic bet and staying patient and we are riding the volatility of curve, which of course comes with our emotions. Yeah. And you spoke in the book that that is part of what the person who considers Bitcoin has to realize they're signing up for. They're signing up for this early, the early volatility is part of why you have to go into that with that mindset. And if you just start from that mindset, it's going to be a different relationship to that volatility. I loved how you spoke to that in the book because that says so much. It's like, have your eyes wide open. You're getting this opportunity because it's volatile. So be comfortable with that. I mean, that and that, that was the me resonating message of the book is uh, I wanted to make a, uh, uh, a uh, statement of explanation of Bitcoin, explain a little bit about the mining, explain why we became bullish on it, what our odyssey was, but then also to tell people, listen, it's an early technology. It's an early technical adoption story. Some people push back on me and say, oh, well, it's 13 years old. I said, well, it is 13 years old. But remember, if you bought Amazon at age 13, Amazon's turning 25 or 26. And I'm, I'm measuring that by the public offering. Obviously, the company was formed in 94, but it came public in May of 1997. And so what I tell people is if you bought Amazon when it was 12 or 13 years old, you went 64 to one on Amazon. All you had to do was stay patient and have high conviction. So, so to me, this is a very early story. It comes with a lot of volatility. Uh, if you look at Bitcoin wallets, you, you're, you're only talking about 150 million 
owners of Bitcoin, 250 million wallets, meaning one owner could have more than one wallet. And when I think about that, it's less than two and a half percent global saturation for Bitcoin. So for me, uh, just imagine we get the 5% or 10%. Uh, and as you and I both know, there's only 20 million coins. So, and as I do point out in the book, some of these coins were lost in the early inception of Bitcoin. And just when you think about that, there's probably only, after everything's fully mined, there's probably only 19 or so million coins. You know, somebody had them on their BlackBerry in 2010. They threw the BlackBerry in the landfill and out with the BlackBerry went to Bitcoin. So, you know, listen, I mean, that's what makes a market. Um, I'm excited about the future. I want my clients not to miss it. And that's why uh, I wrote that book. Yeah. Uh, the other thing that you spoke to, and this was an interview I did with you a couple of years ago, you talked about just your starting out in finance, that you were just really conscious to the humility you needed to show and the intellectual curiosity. And that's what I felt I saw happen as you talk about the beginning exposure to Bitcoin, but I just, as a, you know, emotional intelligence kind of coach, I'm always curious, like, where do you get that intellectual curiosity and how do you check yourself that you're always coming back to that? So it's a really, it's a really good question because, uh, you know, we get so many things wrong. I mean, you don't have all, the, you don't have the time in the day for me to list all of the things that I've got wrong several phone books. Um, but what I am trying to do, um, you know, there's a term from the neuro neuroscientists called neuroplasticity, which basically means the growth of your brain and your ability to see things differently, to make adaptation. Um, the brain typically matures by the age of 30, at least for a male it does. And what ends up happening to you is you start to get locked in to certain ideas, certain ways of living, and you start to get closed-minded. And so it's like exercise. You know, you have to force yourself out of your comfort zone uh, to start thinking about things differently. So what I always try to do is I try to grab books in the bookstore or at Amazon that are outside of my range. And I say, okay, let me see if I can understand this. And so for me with Bitcoin, couple of my friends I'm close to got involved with it. Uh, I was a skeptic, uh, but then I said, you know what? These are super smart people. Let me do some work on this thing and let me keep, keep an open mind. I, I think we have to do more of that. You know, I'm not going to convince people on some of my political views. Everyone's locked in. We're very tribal. We have this identity pol political movement now. Um, I could prove things to somebody empirically. They still will tell me to go scram. But in business, I think results matter. And if you are demonstrating successful investment results or you're demonstrating that you have found something that has this proliferation of use cases, uh, the results are irrefutable. You know, so there are certain parts of our lives where objective criteria really do matter uh, and I think this is one of them. If you just look at the rate of change of growth in an industry, when I bought my first Bitcoin, we were talking about 140 to 50 million owners, approximately 240 million wallets. There was about 30 million owners and there was about 80 million wallets. And I just want you to think of the growth in the last couple of years. Now, if you zoom out, the $18,000 average coin goes to 40. 
That's a pretty good move. You know, I just asking people just zoom out, take yeah. a chill. Yep. Uh, we're waiting for some regulatory things to be resolved. Um, I'm very bullish on the forward positive regulation because, you know, Kim, they didn't want Uber. The regulators railed on it. The Congress railed on it. But we ended up getting Uber. Why do we get Uber? We got Uber because the people wanted Uber. That's right. Okay. And so ultimately with 73 million accounts at Coinbase that are US-based accounts, I got my money on the people. The people are not going to move from this. There, there is a race going on in Ohio right now, whether you like politics or not. There's a Republican uh, just uh, won the primary. He's running against the Democrat. The primary is over last night. They are both pro-Bitcoin. Wow. They're both pro-cryptocurrency. Why? They don't want to lose those voters. you know. And a lot of these voters are one-issue voters. So I think this stuff happens over the next year. I think it's going to be pretty positive. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Uh, one of our podcast friends, uh, Confessions of a Market Maker, their Twitter handles Beyond the Trades. They, we put out that we we're going to be talking to you today. They put a question forward. Uh, they wanted us to know: Should retail traders pay attention to the VCs now backing blockchain projects? In other words, should the should we they be betting on the jockey and not the horse? Do you have an opinion on that? Yeah, really, really good. I mean, these are really good questions. Um, so I don't think we're going to know. And this is the problem with where we are right now. And so what I would say to those people, I've been humbled by markets in life, so I don't know the answer to the question. Uh, and I think we're only going to know through time, the elapsing of time, because you know, for me, I'm taking a portfolio approach. I'm making a bet that Bitcoin lives. I'm making a bet that there are certain layer ones that live. Um, there's a lot of VC money getting thrown into the private companies. The valuations are very high. I've participated on some of those deals, including FTX. And maybe some of those deals are going to get haircutted now because of what's going on in the markets. Uh, although, you know, we, we're, you know, we're getting some guidance from the Federal Reserve that they're going to go a little easier than we all thought on interest rates. But I don't think we know. I think I think at the end of the day, we have to take a port in a new market. We have to take a portfolio approach. And I, here's the other thing I would say. Uh, if I took you back to late 1990s, the markets were valuing Web 1 with these gigantic valuations. Why? Well, they knew there was a massive technological trend that was taking place that was going to get adopted. However, what the market got wrong is they just didn't know who the winners and losers were going to be. So when Pets.com went out of business or eToys went out of business, they had these exorbitant valuations at their peaks, uh, but they didn't make it. But Amazon made it. Google eventually went public in 2004 and made it. And so we don't know the answer, but I'm taking a portfolio approach and that's what I would recommend. Yeah. One of the questions of uh, this guy, Michael C on Instagram asked us to ask you about crypto coins, tokens and airdrops and how do they all tie together? Yeah. So, I mean, again, it's interesting because they tie together in many ways, but they're also different markets, right? So, uh, you know, the NFT space to me is a little bit like the art market. Some of that stuff is based on scarcity. Some of that stuff is based on momentum. There's a little bit of a trading frenzy that goes on in that market. It could get very hot or cool off. Mm -hmm. The 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 airdrops, I'm not 
that experience since I'm not going to opine on that. But what I will say is that there is a disconnect right now between the private company valuations and the underlying tokens. And so I would say something that I want people to think about. I think you're better off buying the tokens because, you know, a lot of our institutional friends are like, well, I can't own cryptocurrency. Warren Buffett hates it, but they're making these large investments in private companies that are related to crypto. And by the way, Buffett owns a very large position in a Brazilian bank that has filed for a Bitcoin ETF, but we won't go there for the sake of exposing that level of hypocrisy. But, but the point, <laughs> the point that I'm, the point that I'm making is these private companies have these very high valuations yeah. And the coins have these lower valuations. I would rather buy the coin because remember, the coins have to go up for the private companies to do well. Yeah. And so I think, it, and it's more liquid. It's more liquid to buy the coin. So, but the NFT market to me is more like the art world. There's some fundamental analysis, but it's really, you know, what is a buyer going to pay for it? And ultimately, somebody said to me, well, I don't understand it. This is a person that's my age. I said, okay, you don't understand it, but you understand the Mickey Mantle card. Oh, I totally understand that. Okay, well, hold on a second. The Mickey Mantle card is a mid-20th century piece of cardboard. It has four-color process ink on one side, mixed faces on it. On the other side, it's his rookie stats. Uh, is that worth $5.2 million? Oh, yes, it is because part of Americana. It's part of the Yankees. It's part of, uh, he's the All-American boy in the post-World War II era playing baseball, and it's very scarce. Okay, well, how is that different from a digital fingerprint, an NFT? How is that different? Beautiful. Well, you see, that, what, you see well, what I'm saying? And, and and that's my point. You know, we don't, we, we you know, we're not living in the future, but we need to understand our children that are taking us into the future. Yeah. We have to figure it out with them. For sure. Yeah. One, one of the gentlemen off Twitter said, did you have an opinion on the SEC bringing a case against Ripple, XRP? Yeah. So I don't know the case well. I know there's a lot of people upset with the SEC thinking they're, they're being overzealous in terms of their enforcement. Um, you know, it's a regulatory agency but they seem hell bent on going full hog on enforcement related to crypto. They just hired and they made this big press release with a lot of fanfare. They just hired an additional 20 people or so to come after the cryptocurrency markets and the cryptocurrency businesses. I, I don't want people to get ripped off. I don't want people to get hacked. I don't want people to get scammed. So I'm all for fair and propitious regulation. But if we're sitting here where, Canada has a cash ETF, Europe has a cash ETP, and we're the United States, the financial center of the world, and we can't get there. I got to tell you, I, I think it's a mistake. So, you know, I don't know the ripple thing, but I do know that the, the SEC is in a little bit of a land grab for regulation. Mm -hmm. yeah. Lucas, did you, you have yeah. some questions? I don't want to take them yeah. all up. I guess uh, I would wonder what's what do you see as the biggest hurdle for like major adoption for uh, Bitcoin or whatever the cryptocurrencies in general? Uh, well, I think I think the rate I think that's the biggest hurdle. You know, if you told me tonight, Lucas, that the SEC was going to approve a cash Bitcoin ETF, yeah. I think that opens up a floodgate of activity because 
let's say that I'm an executive at a private bank somewhere. I'm like, okay, I have to have a cash ETF. Uh, my clients are going to ask for digital asset exposure. And, uh, you know, my competitor down the block is going to own it. I got to own it. Okay. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. Do you think that's um, like, what, what would be, there's been talks I've heard of, of with people talking about like different currencies, like the US dollar going onto blockchain. Um, do you see that as being uh, some sort of competition to Bitcoin as yeah. well? So if you told me that the US dollar was going to be on the blockchain and there was going to be a fixed supply of the US dollar, the US government was no longer going to make any more US dollars and it was limiting the supply of the US dollar as a result of it being onboarded on the blockchain, then I would tell you that would be out there as a potential competitor. I don't think it's a Bitcoin killer, but I think it would be way more competitive. I think what ultimately happens is I think Professor Neil Ferguson is ultimately right. These things coexist with each other. I predict that there will not be a digital US dollar. Uh, the social control involved with that is too autocratic. It's too authoritarian. We still have a Fourth Amendment right to privacy. Um, if, if you have a digital US dollar and it's on your smartphone, it's in your smart wallet, then they know an awful lot about you that is not clear that we would want them to know that much about us. It's still a fairly individualist society, a fairly free society. You know, if the Chinese are against it, I'm pretty sure that we want to be for it. I'm just pretty sure that we do. Okay. And so, so to me, I, I, I like the fact that they're against Bitcoin and they're for the digital yuan. I would like us to be for Bitcoin and against a digital US dollar. But of course, we could have a stable coin, you know, and a stable coin could trade at a constant of one US dollar and we could use that uh, for commercial activity. What was the reason you decided to do the SkyBridge note? So impressed with that, by the way. Um, well, I, I wanted to send a message to the community, to the Bitcoin community that we were in and that we wanted to have a node up on the network where we were uh, out there like everybody else in the community trying to help support the accuracy of the network, preventing the hackability of the network. And so to me, I thought that was a good, I thought that was a good move. Yeah. It just, it just felt like to me you, when I read that in the book, that it was you just literally walking your talk. Yeah. And I, and I, I think it helped us a lot in the community. I think people are like, okay, these guys are super serious, you know? Yeah. It's really impressive. What is your take right now or advice be to traders and or investors just where we are in the market geopolitically? Well, you know, I'm I'm bullish. I know I know my my friends are bearish. Uh, Paul Tudor Jones was on CNBC uh, saying this was a very difficult market environment, and he's more focused on preservation of capital. And he's a lot smarter than me, so he may be right. But when I step back, what I see is I see an environment where we probably printed too much money to try to help people during the COVID situation. And we're trying to figure out a way to reel that back. At the same time, we have these supply chain issues, again, born from COVID. Um, and I I sort of feel, rightly or wrongly, um, that 
this stuff is going to abate. And we have so much pent up demand. Mm. Um, people are looking to go back to restaurants. They're looking to go back to conferences. They're looking to do some summer travel. You know, I just yeah. think that we, you're going to look back and say, well, wait a minute. The forces of technology were out there such where it was deflationary. And yes, we had inflation born from the pandemic, but it got tamped down. The Fed is going to get to the right interest rate number and the economy is going to boom. And we're going to be sitting here saying, geez, I don't, I don't want to miss that for clients. Yeah. You know, so I'm, I'm more optimistic. You know what I mean? Yep. But, you know, yep. you know, but here's the thing, you know, I could be wrong. That's why I have a diversified portfolio. That's why I've got some, um, you know, hedge fund strategies in my portfolio, like Steve Cohen, which are, I would describe them as high gross big portfolio, big balance sheet, but low net businesses. You know, Steve was up like 2.7% last month, even though the market really crapped out, he did very well. Um, you know, you got to have a little bit of diversity in there. I might be wrong, uh, but I'm diversified enough where I think the portfolio is bulletproof. So if I'm wrong, we're going to lose some money, but we're not going to lose money where we're fully capital impaired. I'm reading about people down 40 to 50%. It's very hard to come back from that. I'm not saying they won't. Yeah. Remember, if you go down 50, you got to make 100% to get back to even. So yeah. so my, my goal is when I'm losing money to try to lose the fives and 10% of the world, not the 50s. Yeah. What do you think about Musk and Twitter? Well, you know, I think so much of it that I'm trying to figure out a way to get involved in the privatization. I do believe that there's going to be a financing associated with that privatization He'll eventually take the company public again after he cleans it up. And I'm a huge Elon Musk fan, and I would never bet against him. Yep. I don't buy into the arguments that the left has about him related to free speech. I think he's going to do a good job uh, at being fair. Mm -hmm. uh, some, some people ask about Donald Trump. Remember, Donald Trump was a terrorist threat to the United States. You know, the National Counterintelligence Center deemed him a terrorist threat because of the traffic on his telephone And because of what he was doing at the nation's capital on the 6th of January. So he got taken off of Twitter for a number of different reasons. You know, you may not like the Ayatollah, you may not like President Putin, uh, but they weren't deemed existential terror threats to the U.S. like Donald Trump was. And I think that's a, a very important distinction. You know, if you're going to put him, you're going to put him back on Twitter, that's fine. But he's a direct threat to our democracy in a way that those other people are not necessarily. Yeah. All right, because I know you have to go. I have another question that's going to make the last one. But for those who read your book, The Sweet Life of Bitcoin, who say to themselves, you know what? He's right. I do agree that this is the future. Where do those people begin? If they're all by themselves now, now all their friends think they're wrong and they have to go solo. How do they begin to dip into that pool? So I would say to you, open up an account somewhere, a Coinbase, a Kraken, an FTX, and buy a little each month. You know, I have people that are buying $10 a day. I have people that are buying $100 a month. Just buy a little each month. Before you know it, it'll grow into a nice little nest egg and you'll at least have a toehold. Here's the other thing. When you own something, it's very clarifying. I think we have a tendency uh, to not understand things until we own them. You know, I if I buy myself a car, Yeah. and I'm driving in it, then all of a sudden I notice every other car 
like it on the road. If I don't own the car, I'm they're driving by, I'm not thinking about it. You sort of have to own a little bit of something to really get steeped in it and to really know it. And so I'm just encouraging my clients. It could be a half a percent, 1%, just a small number. Just get in there, buy a little bit of it. And before you know it, you're going to be a very happy camper. Yeah, it's awesome. Muhammad Ali over your shoulder. Yeah. Tell us about that picture. Well, listen, I love the champ. There's a picture of me and the champ here in my office. From, uh, uh, I mean, it's a younger version of me for sure. I mean, it's probably from 20 years ago, but I love the champ. Wow. The champ, uh, you know, he spoke out against the Vietnam War. He was a big part of the uh, civil rights activism in the 60s, try to make the society fairer, more equal. Uh, but he beat to his own drum and he was a very loving, very giving guy. Uh, he had a heart of gold um, and he was a fighter, you know, literally and figuratively. And of course, he battled his greatest battle was with Parkinson's, which he battled for two, almost 25 years. Um, and so I have a huge amount of respect for him. I miss him. Uh, I used to raise money for him. Uh, that is something that was gifted to me by the Muhammad Ali Foundation. And it's actually, if you got close to it, it's it's signed by the champ. Oh my God. Um, and it's something that I always, I when I started Skybridge, it was in my first office. And so even though that's a glass, I I, I pinned it up on the glass. I don't, this office is surrounded by glass. I was like, yeah. okay, I'm, yeah. I'm putting that in my <laughs> office. I don't care. So it's, it's just know. the energy, even at a distance is just that he's moment. The man. Victory. I mean, he, he's he's the man, you know, and, and you know, Beautiful. around on the other side here is Jackie Robinson. Those are my two heroes. You know, those guys, uh, you know, you don't get Muhammad without Jackie. You don't get Barack Obama without Jackie. Yeah. ML King Jr. has a harder time without Jackie. Yeah. Um, and Jackie, you know, took a lot of abuse mentally and physically yes. uh, to do what he did 75 short years ago. Um, and, you know, I'm for a fairer, more just society. You know, I'm a I'm a Republican, but I'm like a common sense, normal Republican uh, who does believe in fairness and equality. I don't believe in this sort of right wing nativism and this ethno centrism and stuff. Well, what sort of hate it, you know? their qualities to me are unstoppable. And I have to say that is the quality I just see you constantly portraying. Like you are unstoppable. You're just pivoting. You always know how to bounce. You don't take things personally. It's incredible. Anthony. Well, sweetie to say, I mean, I, 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 I have my bad days too. I just want to, you know, let you know, like, I, I, but, but I, I will say this. You to, have your bad days that I, your ability to handle those bad days and yeah. bounce back is so inspiring. If you didn't have the bad days, you wouldn't look human. Well, here's, here's what I would say to you. Um, if you're ever having a bad day, Kim, give me a call. I'll regale you on the day that I got myself fired from the White House. Okay, July 31st, 2017, blown into Pennsylvania Avenue and lit up by every late night comedian in America. Okay, but that wasn't enough. You know, the cable news pundits were also, you know, ripping me up pretty hard, too. So, you know, it's how you handle things. How, you know what I mean? How, how did you handle that? How did you navigate that without crevicing? Uh, well, you know, look, I grew up in a blue collar neighborhood. You know, my, my dad said something to me that I'll share with you. When I got my first job at Goldman, my dad said to me, hey, I don't ever want to hear you complaining about your job. 
And I'm like, why is that, Dad? He said, well, let me tell you something. You're indoors. You're out of direct sunlight, and there's no heavy lifting. Okay. And there was a guy that worked 42 years on a crane in hot and cold weather, and he was sending me a message, you know, hey, you should be grateful for what you have. So even on the day of getting fired from the White House, I was, uh, you know, contemplative. It sucked. It was a bad day. I mean, who's kidding who? But I was also philosophically in check that things are going pretty well for me and I'll do the best I can to make the best of this too. But before we go, I just want to let everybody know I have 1 million more Twitter followers than Donald J. Trump. I just thought (laughs) I'd get out there. All right, but you guys have a great one. Thank you so much for having me on. Thank you so much for coming on. And I hope uh, just everything unfolds as you, you speak about in the book. It was an inspiring book, short and sweet, right to the point. So a must well, read. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. So much. Right, good luck well, with it, guys. All right, we'll see you soon. Okay, I'll talk. This is the Wall Street Coach Podcast with Kim Ann Curtin. You can download Kim's free ebook, Discipline and Finding Your Edge at TraderDiscipline.com and learn more about working with Kim and her team at TheWallStreetCoach.com. And if you're feeling generous, please leave a rating and review wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you for listening.